Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, I thank you we can come to your word this morning. And God, we just ask that you would add your blessing to the word. We ask, God, that as uh, we make plans and some of the things where we sense your leading and your direction to, to send someone out, uh, to be behind it, to plant a church, God, we're asking your blessing upon that. We thank you for your spirit's leading, your spirit's preparation. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, we sense your timing is now. And so, God, we ask your blessing upon that and upon our time here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, you may be seated. <coughs> Matthew chapter 6. Right on. Well, as we roll into Matthew chapter 6, I hope you've been enjoying Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Coming through Matthew chapter 5, we're still in this same sermon, this same message from Jesus. It takes Matthew chapter 5 through 7 to get through it all. But this morning, as as we stay on this theme of the kingdom manifesto, uh, the constitution of Jesus' kingdom, and what his rule looks like, and what it's like to live in his kingdom, um, in this section in chapter 6, it's as though we kind of come to a new section. Last, where we kind of ended off in, in chapter 5, Jesus introduced to us principles of the kingdom, principles that his followers are to practice as they live righteous lives. Not to save them, because only Jesus saves, but practices that they were to live by, principles of righteousness they were to live by as kingdom citizens. And if we are citizens of the kingdom, then what righteousness means is that God has put on us certain expectations of what that looks like. And living righteously means to live up to those expectations. And so last Sunday we looked at six guiding principles that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to remind you because it's going to help us as we go into this next section. And they were this. These principles for the kingdom. That the heart matters. That we're to take serious measures when it comes to issues of sin. That we're to value marriage. That we are to practice simplicity in our speech. Yes is yes and no is no. That, that in our dealings with other people, we go the extra mile because Jesus went more than the extra mile for us. And the last one was this, that we love our enemy. And now, uh, the message of Jesus is going to change direction a little bit and he's going to talk about this practice of righteousness and a little more what it looks like and he says this in verse 1 of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Interesting to me that all of a sudden as Jesus has been talking about righteousness, now he gives a warning about righteousness. Beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness in front of other people in order to be seen by them. See, there is actually a foe in the practice of true righteousness. An enemy that sometimes we're not totally quick to recognize because it's a subtle enemy. It reminds me of a story of, of Ben, my brother-in-law, you know, uh, 
Ben and Amy, they've gone back to Indonesia and Ben tells a story about one time he was doing work around the house and he'd been coming in and out of the entrance to his house and going about his day and just, I, don't, I can't remember if he was in bare feet or flip-flops, but there wasn't much on his feet. And then as he was going about doing his thing, all of a sudden he realized that there laying in the grass beside the entrance to the house was a cobra. Like something we just don't experience in our culture around here, right? And it was just this realization that all this while he had been coming in and out of the door, just a misplaced step or an unwary hand put in the wrong spot and this cobra could have struck out and delivered the poison bite, the sting of death. And there is an enemy to righteousness that is kind of similar to the subtle snake in the grass, so to speak, the cobra laying there by the door. That's subtle and it's cunning. And you'd say, well, who's the enemy of righteousness? Well, unfortunately, often I look at the enemy of righteousness when I brush my teeth in the morning, <laughs> looking into the mirror. Because Jesus says, you've got to beware yourself as you practice righteousness. You have to beware that you do these things to be seen by people. And as Jesus calls us to this practice of righteousness, he, he gives this warning to beware the pitfall of practicing righteousness for the sake of being seen by other people. It's such a subtle thing. But I would say this, this verse right here, this warning is the key to the whole passage that we're about to try and unlock. This door we're going to look, look at, verses 1 through 18. There's really a strange paradox in the teaching of Jesus. It's this, you know, and we've seen it in the Sermon of the Mount. He says, you're the light of the world. Shine. You know, a city on a hill can't be hidden. So let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. We're supposed to let the light shine. And then yet at the same time, Jesus says this. Be careful. Beware when you practice righteousness before men. You know, think about it. In the Christian life, we're supposed to attract attention. And yet at the same time, we're not supposed to attract attention to self. To ourselves. And what it really comes down to is motivation. Are we, are we motivated uh, by the glory of God to make God known, to make Jesus known? Or are we motivated by receiving praise from people? Receiving praise from men? You know, the more that we, uh, the more that we grow to know Jesus, it's, it's kind of a dreadful thing to discover more about human nature, you know? The more you know Jesus and the more you begin to discover yourself, you know, I mean, we love the identity that we've received in Christ. It's awesome. I'm so thankful. We need to study that. We need to know our identity in Christ. We want to grow in our identity in Christ. But at the same time as that is happening, there's often this other thing that happens, and it's this, is that you, that you grow in a journey of self-discovery. And, and as you're growing in your identity in Christ, you're growing in this journey of self-discovery, and it's like, man, it's not uncomfortable what I'm covering here. I mean, this is uncomfortable, this doesn't feel good. Sin goes deep, man. It goes deep into this heart of mine. And so as Jesus calls us to the practice of righteousness, to letting our light shine, he warns that it gets off track when we, see, we, we get, begin to seek to take the glory from God when we you know, take our eyes off of Jesus and instead of looking up, we just take the chance to look around and see who's watching us. 
and see, to see what we're doing. And the truth is, is that the practice of, of righteousness, the practice of living Jesus can often become something that is motivated by a desire to be seen by others. To have them go, ooh, ah, aren't they so spiritual? But the goal is actually not to be seen. The, the goal is to follow Jesus. That he become more and we become less. And so Jesus calls us to this life of, I don't know, paradoxical living where we are the visible invisible. We let our light shine and yet we take care to hide ourselves in the midst of it. You know, when we were on our, our, our trip to Egypt and Jordan and Israel, we, ha- we had so many funny things um, happen and um, interesting things. One of the things that I did with our group and I've kind of done over the years with the trip is this, is that the different leaders and pastors kind of take spots as we're doing border crossings and such things as that. And so I take up the spot at the back of the group, make sure everybody's getting through. We come to the border crossing, a security check, whatever it is. It's like, you know, I want to make sure they're not going to arrest George. I want to know that Alex isn't going to be taken away in handcuffs. You know, things like that. No, I wasn't worried about those guys. It was Donna. It was Colleen I was concerned about. (laughs) But when we traveled from Egypt to Jordan, we did this. We drove up the Sinai Peninsula on the eastern side of the of, of the peninsula on the Red Sea up to the border of Israel. We went, we walked across the border into Israel. We got on a bus. We took a 15 minute drive and then we walked across the border from Israel into Jordan. It was totally fascinating. I was like, I was so interested to see how this whole process is going to go. And we had, because we had to walk, I decided, man, I don't, I got, I got my backpack, a small day pack I got my laptop bag and I got a suitcase I'm dragging behind me. I think I'm going to make this easier for myself. Laptop and iPad are going in the suitcase. So I stuff them in there and I'm at the back of the group. Well, as you can imagine, the Israelis don't like that. There's objects like that in my suitcase, you know. You know how it is. A laptop comes out when you go through the security checks. And so next thing I know, I'm standing there with a security person and an Israeli soldier comes over. He's got the Tavor, this stinking awesome machine gun that those guys have. He's like big and bad looking. And um, the group is gone and I'm behind now. (laughs) Forget George or Alex. Um, They've got me. And so they go through all my stuff and Checking to see if my laptop's been pulled apart and this and that and asking questions, making me handle things. And finally we get through security and we get through and we hop on this bus. And on the bus we meet this guide who's going to just help us to the short drive. Our plan is this. We're going to go. We're now in Israel. We're going to have dinner. And then we're going to do the, the drive that is just 15 minutes to the Jordanian border. And we're going to cross in and go to our hotel in Jordan before we come back to Israel in a few days. And uh, we meet this little lady. She's, I don't know, she was hilarious, man. She spoke with a Hebrew and a Dutch kind of accent on her English. And she was a spinster, about 50, and full of spunk and talking about her boyfriends and this and that. And just a character beyond everything that you can imagine. And a little Jewish lady with a kind of Dutch Hebrew accent. I I mean, from the movies, you name it, that was her. And so we go and we have dinner and we load on the bus. And as we're getting ready to head to the Jordanian border, she hands this black duffel bag 
to us pastors. Small duffel bag, and she says, I want you to take this duffel bag with you and take it into Jordan, and then you give it to your guide. And I'm like, you want me to do what? <laughs> you, want, you, want me to, you want me to take what? You, you want us to handle what? And you know, you, you, you go into Israel, and, and I mean, it seems there like everybody is connected. You know, you start to talk to them. It's like Shinbet, Masad over here. It's like, don't look at that building. Don't look over there. You might see that, but pretend you don't see that. And, you know, police and army and, and the whole deal. And, and before you know it, your pastor for CTK is like being a mule for the Israelis <laughs> into Jordan. And we're thinking, what's going on? So I'm sure you're wondering what was in the bag. Well, the Jordanians were wondering that too because they detained our whole group for 45 minutes at the border because of this bag and because of the contents of this bag. And I'm going, I, you know, I'm seeing the other pastor. I'm like, you know, like, I know that we know what's in here, but do we know what's in here? Like, do we know who our guy, 15 minutes, this and that, whatever. And what was in the bag was this, was all of these little receivers and headsets for everybody in our tour group. And then the same thing for our guide with a microphone so that he could walk around with us and speak and you didn't have to be right nearby him and, and he could hear. But as you could imagine, the Jordanians didn't like these little receivers and all of these things coming into their country. And it took a little while for us to, to get through and, and so, you know, it probably sounds more dramatic than it was, but it's really cool to say you were a mule for the Israelis. Uh, you know, it's not like I'm Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but, you know, pastor, spy, anything like that, but it was cool. And, you know, there is something fascinating to me about the world of spies. I don't know about you, about secret service, about espionage, about, you know, all this kind of stuff. FBI, counterintelligence, CSIS, Mossad. MI5, MI6, you know, James Bond, KGB, CIA. I can name them all. I was a mule for the Israelis. I mean, sheesh. But you know, every nation of any influence seems to have organizations like that, don't they? And one of the things that's interesting is they, they protect and they work, they work for the interests of their country to protect security, to protect their people. And what I want to tell you this morning is this, is that as we've been talking about the kingdom of God, the constitution of the kingdom, the establishment of the kingdom, about King Jesus and how his kingdom functions, his kingdom is no different. There's a secret service involved. There's a secret service involved, and guess what? You've been recruited. I've been recruited into a life of secret service. We're the visible invisible for King Jesus. Not only have you been recruited, but inherent to your secret service job is a reward. You know, as I walked around in those areas where we were over there in the Middle East, when I saw, uh, it was interesting because you meet different people. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, my, this is my little business. I was a colonel in the Israeli army. I'm thinking, this dude was a colonel in the Israeli army. Whatever, you're meeting all these different people. And after they've retired, there's like certain benefits to their service. You know, that guy was doing pretty well. I, I saw how his life worked and all that kind of stuff. And I want to tell you that inherent to your secret service job in the kingdom of God, reward is inherent. You know, for some reason in my head, I think, well, you know, I should just serve Jesus out of the goodness of my heart and my, my love for him and because it's honorable and because it's integrity and 
All of those things are totally good, but it's actually biblical and right to be motivated by the fact that there is a reward for service. And Jesus is going to tell us that over and over again as we go through this text. We will be rewarded by our Father in heaven for how we serve King Jesus. And so Jesus says this, pay attention to what is motivating how you serve. Is it the glory of God that is motivating you or is it the praise of men? Are you looking up as you serve or are you looking around to see who's watching? It's the choice between pleasing God with the look up for his glory or the choice of seeking to please yourself and wanting the praise of men by looking around to receive their glory. And so Jesus says again in verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. So Jesus here is going to illustrate this principle three times. And he's going to kind of hold up the mirror for us, for our hearts, as his followers. To help us see, are we craving the praise of men? You know, are our righteous things, that the righteous acts that we are seeking to do for the kingdom, are they being corrupted by our desire to have men praise us? Or are we letting our light shine uh, from the place of having a heart that's living out of de- in devotion to God? And our devotion and our shining can be corrupted like by the snake that's laying in the grass in each one of our lives. Lying by the door. And our righteous acts can be corrupted by our hunger for the praise of men. And so Jesus illustrates in three areas. The first one is in giving. Check out verse 2. He says this. So when you, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. Instead, have a parade. No, he doesn't say that. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. You know, one of the times that I find so interesting in this community, you know, every community's got its culture and this and that is, is around Christmas locally. You know, around Christmas locally, we've got all sorts of awesome programs that kick up and get rocking to, to help those who um, are less fortunate within our community. But one of the things I've observed over, over recent years is Facebook has become the forum for like making appeals and, and sharing what's been done is that um, it, it, it seems to me that people want to like announce their kindness. You know, announce their act of charity on their different forum that they're a part of. I gave this. I contributed that. You know, and they, they toot their own... Horn, and as I've observed that, I thought, you know, the, these people aren't what they seem to be. They, they aren't what they're proclaiming themselves to be. They're, they're making a gift. They're doing a charitable action. They're announcing their, their kindness. But they seem to be doing this act of kindness, and I wonder, is their goal to help the needy or to receive the praise of men? Say, oh, wow, yeah, you're so awesome. Like, click, heart, happy face. (laughs) Sometimes I hate Facebook. Anyways. 
And their goal is the praise of people. And so the words of Jesus are powerful because he says this, truly I say to you, they received their reward. They got what they wanted. There's no eternal reward attached to their giving because their motivation was not the glory of God, but the praise of men. And so they got their praise and they received their reward. The praise of men is their reward and they will get nothing from God. You know, a friend of mine, uh, quite a number of years ago, was working with a ministry where there was a family that gave a sum of money uh, towards a building project. And it was a generous gift. And the organization was Christian. And so what they did was they planned a ceremony to announce the gift. And my friend was a part of this. He was working with them. And the family, when they found out there was going to be a ceremony, made this request. They, they wanted, they adamantly asked, he told me, to have a brass band present at the announcement of the gift and the honoring of this family. You know, blow the trumpet. Have a ceremony. Announce my generosity and put my name on the building. Now, I don't know the heart of that family. If you ask them, I'm sure that they would tell you that they were motivated by the glory of God. That they were not seeking the praise of men. They wanted to do something for the kingdom and build the, the kingdom. But in the midst of the whole process, something subtle happened in their own hearts. The snake in the grass reared its head. The cobra stood up and stung and bite, bit. And theirs was not an act of charity. They did not give, but they bought the praise of men. They invested in speculation. They speculated, if I give to this charity, then I will receive the profit of the praise of men. And after a short blast of the horns, I guess the ceremony was over and so was the reward. And I would venture to say this, this display, the exhibitionism, I don't know, the ostentatiousness of their action was hypocrisy. It was hypocrisy because their action assumed a certain virtue was motivating their giving, but it was not there. It was not present. You know, on the other hand, I've heard other stories. I heard a story this week of a church that went into a building program and there was a gift given and it was a substantial gift and the only string attached was this, that the giver had to remain anonymous. No one was to know who it was. And they gave close to a million bucks towards this building program. Nobody knew who did it. It's not very common. But you see the contrast here in what Jesus is talking about. That it's dangerous. That there is something subtle in the hearts of mankind that will mingle in hypocrisy. In the righteous acts that we do for the kingdom. The righteous acts that we're actually doing for ourselves, not for the kingdom. And it can show itself in our giving. And so Jesus says, if the hand gives, if the right hand gives, don't let the left hand know what's going on. I, I, it's something that needs to happen within myself that I say, I'm not going to entertain those thoughts. I'm not going to think those things. I'm going to bury that. See, the hand can give, but then the eye can wander to see who's watching. As the scripture tells us, a little yeast works its way through all the dough. And so when we consider our 
our calling, the fact that we've been recruited into the secret surface of his kingdom, the visible, invisible. So secret is our service that we are not to let the right hand know what the left hand is doing and vice versa. Because our motivation is not to get the praise of men, but our motivation should be the glory of God. And God knows the heart. People don't know their own heart. You know, you can deceive others. I can deceive you. I could put all the, all the mask of, of righteousness, the mask of hypocrisy, and yet you not know where my heart is at with Jesus Christ. I could persuade you that I'm selfless. You could persuade me that you're selfless. But the reality is, is that God knows each one of our hearts. And there is no reward from God for those who seek a reward from men. So let's remember, you know, this, that we are always in the sight of God's presence. That he sees the heart, that he judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. He sees and so we live, we seek to live and do what we do to please him. The second illustration of Jesus is this, is that he calls us to the life of secret service and prayer. Check it out, verse 5. He said this, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The words between Jesus' first illustration on giving and his second illustration on prayer are almost identical. Did you see that? It's almost, it's almost identical. It's just like swap the words out and he's given the same thing. He's going to talk about fasting in a few minutes. That'll be the third illustration. But the principle is the same, whether it's giving or whether it's prayer or whether it's fasting, where we're going to go. But prayer. You know, when we were in Egypt, I, I saw something quite a few times that I'd never seen before. I'd heard about it, but I'd never seen it. It, it kind of struck me funny at first, but I, I saw this gentleman and he had a bruise in the middle of his forehead. It was really dark. I thought, oh man, that's, man, somebody cracked that guy. And, uh, and then I saw it again and I saw it again. I saw it a different guy and I saw it here and there. And, and typically this, this bruise was like the size of a quarter to the size of a loony and sometimes more than a bruise, it looked like a callus. And the first few times I didn't, that I saw it, I didn't think much of it until, you know, I began to put the puzzle together. Because uh, I'd heard about it, that devout Muslim men often develop a bruise on their forehead from being in the place of prayer. They, they get down on their, their knees and they, they bow as they pray to Allah and they put their forehead to the ground and over time, they can develop this bruise or this callus on their forehead and they don't mind having this unsightly thing on their head because for them, it's, it communicates that they're super serious about their faith. That they're super devout in the place of prayer. They even say that some of them do it intentionally, that when they bow down and pray, they put a pebble on the ground and they rest their head on the pebble. <laughs> Aren't you glad that you're free in Jesus Christ? And they bruise their forehead to communicate that they are particularly devout, that they spend lots of time in prayer. And what does it communicate? 
Does it communicate that they're devout in prayer or does it, they, does it communicate that they are men who want the praise of other people? And to me, it's the second. They want the praise of other people. When we think about prayer, what is prayer? It's talking with God. I mean, it's that simple. It's approaching God. But there is something that happens to us in, the heart, in prayer. It happens to me. It happens to you. I know it happens to us. So we're going to acknowledge it because Jesus said it right here. That there is something in the heart of mankind that, that as it looks up to heaven, it at the same time wants to look around and say, who's watching me? Do I look good? Do I sound good? I mean, who's watching? And the Pharisees were not subtle in their practice of the prayer. They did it to be seen by others. When Jesus says here, don't pray on the street corner, he's talking about the Pharisee as he's on his way to the house of God and the Pharisee is just so excited to be on the house of God, to be on the way to the house of God that sometimes he'll just stop and break out in prayer and make a scene on the street and people are like, wow, that dude's holy. Look at him. I mean, he's just going to the house of God and this is how he's acting and it's all dramatic They wanted to be seen by others and it was no different than a bruise on the forehead. And often we are much too blind to the hypocrisy in our own lives. We're blind to see the Pharisee. I'm blind to see the Pharisee in myself. You're blind to see the Pharisee in, your, in you. And we may not be standing on the street corner. We may not be all dramatic in the place of prayer in the church, but we can subtly call attention to ourselves rather than Jesus in the place of prayer. Where we're more occupied with ourselves and self, and who we are, then we're occupied with the glory of God. And prayer turns into a mean of glorifying self rather than glorifying God. And, and we forget that as we come to the place of prayer, we're in this place of, of communion with the living God. And our thoughts revolve around ourselves rather than God. And our thoughts revolve around how people are perceiving us and looking at us rather than thinking about the glory of God. And so Jesus says this, there's something that's to be visible and invisible about prayer. There's something to be in your prayer that's a secret service where you go into the prayer closet and, or you, you shut the door and you go into your room and you pray to your father who sees in secret and your father who sees in secret, he says, will Reward you. You know, sometimes prayer is public. Prayer is a very public thing too. We gather, we have, we have corporate prayer meetings. We pray on a Sunday morning. But even in the midst of that, even when we're around others, uh, we need to try to focus on the glory of God and not what others are thinking. You know, we want to make our prayer so polished, so smooth, so polite and Sometimes unconsciously we get occupied with how we sound and occupied with ourselves and occupied with our flowery speech and occupied with who's there rather than just talking to God. I read something really cool from Martin Lloyd-Jones that he said this, when I, when I pray, whether I pray privately in my personal life or whether I'm praying in public, I do this. I try to make this my practice because he said I'm guilty of what Jesus talked about said I try to make this my practice. I forget others and I even try to forget myself. I just want to glorify God. I just want to talk to my Lord. 
Jesus says in verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. You know, think about prayer and how we pray, the words that come out of our mouth. Is it the form of our words that God answers? Is it the amount of time that we spend in the place of prayer that God responds to? Or is it the heart behind that which is going on? The heart behind the prayer. A, a heart that is focused on the glory of God. And I would say this, it's the heart. It's not the form of the words. It's not the hours. I think it was John Wesley who said he doesn't think much of a Christian. He doesn't spend four hours a day in prayer. I thought, wow, John. That's, that's, that's quite the statement. Is it repetition? Is it counting beads? Is it saying you're, you know, our fathers? Is it your mantra, mantras like lines of detention before God that he responds to? Or is it a hungry heart that God responds to? Is it a heart that longs for his glory and for his presence that he responds to? We're so quick to turn prayer into something that's mechanical rather than conversational. You know, where it's just a list rather than a heart being poured out before him. As I think of these words of Jesus warning, you know, don't be like the Gentiles, these vain repetitions. I'm reminded of Acts and Paul in Ephesus in the book of Acts there where the mob went crazy and for, I don't know, remember how long it was, they shouted, great is Artemis, the God of the Ephesians, and they just lost their minds. Or think of the priests of Baal, Mount Carmel, who shouted in the presence of Elijah and they cut themselves trying to implore their God, oh Baal, hear us. Or think of the Buddhist, you know, in his repeated sacred invocation, mantra, whatever you call it, where they're, you know, almost hypnotized or stupefied or something like that. So they just repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. So Jesus warns, we, we can make the same mistake thinking that it's your words that move the heart of God. Actually, I believe this, that true prayer does not so much move the heart of God as it moves my heart towards God. If there is something secretive about the service of prayer, it might be this, that in prayer, you're to do this. Shut out other people and forget about yourself. Shut out other people and forget about yourself and zone in on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of God. And you know, you can do that anywhere. You don't have to be in the secret place locked in a, in a closet. You could be walking down the street and nobody knows that your heart is zoned in on the person of Jesus and the glory of God and you can be having a conversation with your father. You can do that in the workplace. You can do it at the dinner table it can happen anywhere and you've entered the secret place of that prayer closet and no one knows. It's a secret. The visible, invisible. Forgetting about others and forgetting about yourself. And there, there are times to pray for others, of course. There, there are times to lift up your needs before God, of course. But in prayer, I'm not speaking to others. I'm not speaking to myself. I'm talking to my Father in heaven. 
And he deserves my attention and my focus. And so the remedy for our prayer life is understanding what Jesus says here. That your father, get this, that your father knows what you need before you ask. What it, that should be in the forefront of our mind every time we come to prayer. I know you know what I need. <laughs> I know you know what I'm going to ask. You know, and the question might be this, is then what, what are we praying for? Why pray? If he knows, if he knows what I need before I ask, what, what is the whole purpose of this exercise of prayer and forgetting others and forgetting myself and coming in and focusing on the glory of God? And I would say it's this. It's not to inform him because he already knows. It's not to move him because his heart is unwilling to be moved. It's not to move him because he doesn't want to have mercy or extend forgiveness. Because as Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask. I I really believe that it's so that we move our hearts. So that our hearts are moved in the place of prayer. So that we recognize our need. So that we confess our dependence. So that we can be in the place to receive the gifts that our father wants to give us. Because it's not I, it's because it's I who move in prayer, not God. And so Jesus gives us an example of prayer. Check it out. We're going to look at it quickly this morning. I I wish we were going to dig deep, but we're not going to dig deep. So Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our Father in heaven, this prayer that Jesus gives us, you know, it's something we can pray like we did this morning, but it's also a structure and a a pattern that Jesus has given us for prayer. And prayer begins, the prayer that Jesus gives us begins with a recognition of the fatherhood of God. The father heart of God. This is the prayer of a child coming to their father. And this is a prayer that only truly can be offered. You know, it's amazing. Everybody knows the Lord's prayer. They do. You know, I've done memorial services and stuff like that and I'm just thinking... Okay, the family wanted the Lord's Prayer. Our Father. And the whole whole congregation joins in. You're like, wow, everybody here knows it. They all know it. And, but the reality is this, is that this is a prayer that only can truly be offered by those who have placed their faith in the Son, Jesus Christ. It can only truly be offered by those who have received adoption as children of God. And so as Jesus teaches us to begin prayer with our Father, we learn this, that prayer is relational. That prayer is relational. It's it's about a relationship between his Father and his children and prayer, as we acknowledge our Father, begins with worship. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. See, our Father is in heaven. Our Father is... Lifted above the limitations and the imperfections of this earth. And so we look to one who is not held to the impossibilities of this world. With God, nothing is impossible. 
All things are possible. He's a father who is in heaven. And so as the prayer begins, our father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, uh, it really is a, a prayer that first, before it brings petitions towards God, recognizes the relationship that we have with God and offers worship to him. And it's God first and man second. His glory before my wants. That's the order. You know, when we say hallowed be your name, we're, uh, we're acknowledging the character and the nature of our God. It's as though the, the motives for our prayer has to move to the glory of God. We have to think about his nature. We have to think about who he is. We have to think about his goodness and his mercy and his grace and his love and his justice and his kindness. And the name of God speaks the character, speaks of the character of his, his nature. And so when we say, hallowed be your name, we are acknowledging the holiness of God's character and his nature. Jesus said, pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've been talking about the kingdom lots in the gospel of Matthew. The kingdom speaks of the sphere of God's rule, the extension of his rule. It speaks, the kingdom speaks of his rule over the hearts of men. And God's rule is established where his name is hallowed, where the name of Jesus is acknowledged. And as I think about this, he says that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm just reminded that there was a time when heaven and earth existed in perfect harmony. In the garden. And Adam's walk with the Lord. And sin ruined all that, but God by his glory is seeking to bridge heaven and earth once again through the person of Jesus Christ. And the immediate purpose of prayer is this, is that the will of God would be established on earth. See, prayer is actually a partnership with God. Not where we get, you know, we often make the mistake that this is where I get my will done in heaven. It's not what prayer is. Prayer is God getting his will done on earth. My will assumes, when I say my will, that assumes that I know better than God. That God is my servant and I'm the master. When I say your will, it acknowledges that God knows better, that God is omniscient, that God knows all things. That he is functioning in life and in the universe and in the heavens with more knowledge than I am. You think that's fair to say? He's omniscient. Your will be done. And so when we acknowledge God as, as Lord and we say your will, when we say your will, we're acknowledging God as Lord rather than me as master. And it's in that place where I'll submit to the will of my Father. I love this prayer because in my mind, the Lord's prayer is a prayer of trust. It says, I trust you. I trust you. Your will be done. I trust you. This is relationship with God right side up, this prayer. You know, I think of Jesus. He said this. It says this of Jesus in the Old Testament. I exist to do your will. Jesus said of himself to his disciples in John 4, he said to his disciples, my, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. We often have this wrong concept of the will of God where we say the will of God is punishment, you know? He's gonna make me do it his way. 
But Jesus said, no, it's not punishment. It's nourishment. Doing the will of God is food for you. It, it satisfies you. It fills your longing. It fills your, the belly of your spirit. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then in the second half of this prayer, it begins to deal with our needs. Where we ask God to supply and to bring provision for our daily needs. We, we pray this. Give us our daily bread. And I just think about that. I think, what, what do I have that God hasn't given me? You know, if you think about it. What do you have that God has not given you? His word tells us that he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. The father of heavenly lights. He's omniscient. He knows what I need before I ask. He's omnipresent, which means he's always there. He's with me in every, every situation. Jesus promised, I will be with you to the end of the age. He's always with me. Always knows what's going on. Always with me. And we know this about God. He's omnipotent, which means this, that he's able to do more than I can ask or imagine. There's no lack in his resources. And asking is a rule of the kingdom. Give us our daily bread. It's an acknowledgement. My bread comes from you. What's a, what satisfies me is sourced in you, Jesus. And when we ask for bread, we are asking for that which sustains us, no matter the situation. God knows what I need. He's present with me, and he can provide more than I can think or imagine. More than I can ask or imagine. I'm asking you, God, for my daily bread. I'm asking you, sustain me. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts. I, I kind of, when I was teaching my kids the Lord's Prayer when they were little, I always, when, I always take the word debts out or trespasses and I'd say sin. We should say sin, guys, because it's our language. It's, it's our language for us because sin is debt incurred against God. It's the kind of debt from which you can never climb out. I hope you don't live in that kind of debt in your financial life. But you know, in your spiritual life, there is a debt from which we can never climb out. The only way out is to actually acknowledge that you're bankrupt. That you have no means possible whatsoever to pay back the debt. I mean, as universal as the need is for bread, so is the need of forgiveness. And forgiveness is this, the canceling of the debt. And we say, God, forgive me my debt. My debt against you, forgive it. And we can be forgiven our debt through the cross of Jesus. The condition is, is that we place our faith in him. And as we confess our sins, the scripture tells us he's faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so we say, God, forgive me my debts. And when you've forgiven them, man, wash my feet, Jesus. I need your daily cleansing as the dust of this earth gets on me. And Jesus says this, as we have been forgiven, uh, and forgive us our debts, and as we also have forgiven our debtors. See, as we have been forgiven, we must forgive. We pass on to others that which we've received. I'm going to talk about that in a minute here because Jesus is going to go back to that thought. But then in verse 13, the last thing in this prayer, he says this is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
You know, I think about the temptations that you and I face. There are many, aren't they? They're diverse. They come in different forms. They rear their head one way this way. They rear their head another way another day. And sometimes the attack comes through doubt, you know. Sometimes the attack comes through a false sense of security. And what is healthy that we see in this prayer, what, what is healthy in the place of prayer is that we be conscious of our weakness. Conscious of our need for God's help. Conscious of our need for his protection in times of temptation. And, and I would say our prayer means, you know, not, do not lead us into temptation. But when we face temptation, bring me through the trial, Jesus. Lead me through the trial. It's an awesome prayer. It's the prayer that we're called to in this life of secret service. And so Jesus says this in verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And so as Jesus just puts a bow on this whole discussion about prayer and not doing your righteousness so as to be seen by men, but to do it to honor God so that it's rewarded. He gives this warning about the forgiveness of sin. I, I kind of summed it up in my own mind this way. Paraphrase it this way. It's the, it, he's saying this. If you see yourself as better than others, then there is no forgiveness for your sin. You have to recognize that you're a sinner and Jesus forgave your sin and so you have no right to not forgive others who sin against you. Prayer. Secret service of prayer. Then quickly, let's look at fasting. The third illustration of the life of secret service. Verse 16. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, it's almost, it's almost identical words, you know. The whole structure of what Jesus says here in regards to a giving and prayer and fasting, it's identical. And it makes me... Ask this question, well, what is the purpose of fasting? What is fasting and what is its purpose? Well, we know this. Fasting, uh, sometimes we make the choice not to uh, feed ourselves physically. And, and fasting is based on this understanding of the relationship between the body and the spirit. Fasting is a practice by which we teach the body. We discipline the body. We discipline the flesh and we say, to the, we say to the flesh and to the appetites of the flesh, you come second. You come second to the working of God's spirit. You come second to the priority of me living for the kingdom. And so just as a reminder to you today, I'm going to teach you a lesson, flesh. I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to remind you that you are second you're down in the order of serving God and I'm going to deprive you. I'm going to discipline you and I'm going to give my priority and my time to things of the spirit. To the life of the spirit. To my spiritual life and to seeking after the things of God. And so when we fast and we go through the process and hunger kicks in and 
you know, the warning of Jesus here is this. It's like, man, act like it's a normal day. You know, just because you're going without food doesn't mean you shower. You don't shower. You don't comb your hair. You know, you don't put your makeup on. I put mine on for you this morning. You, you, you know, you, you go about the regular day, you know, not advertising the fact that you're seeking after the things of the Spirit because what do you want? The praises of men or the glory of God? The reward of God? And when we're hungry and, and then bring attention to ourselves in, in that process, it's just off. I mean, you get, you get what Jesus is saying here. Then we're not looking to the Lord for spiritual food. We're not looking to the Lord for spiritual bread, but rather we're looking around to see who's looking. Looking for the praise of men. And Jesus says, if the praise of men is what you want, then you'll get your reward and that'll be it. Oh, you don't look well today. Yeah, I'm fasting. <laughs> Clean yourself up, man. Wash your face. Put some clean clothes on. <laughs> you get the deal. You know, when all is, Bonhoeffer said this, actually. I read something by Bonhoeffer this week, and I, I thought it was good. He said this, when all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. Sometimes I need every weapon available and so I go to the place of fasting because I got to teach that flash a lesson. You know, as I was thinking about this, I, I, I actually wondered this. What am I voluntarily suffering, suffering for the kingdom of heaven? What am I voluntarily, you know, if, am I suffering and cutting time out of this or that to go to the place of prayer? Am I hurting my finances so that I can give to the kingdom of God? Am I teaching my physical body a lesson so that I can live for the things of the Spirit? What am I voluntarily suffering for Christ? See, the real difference in the believer who follows Christ, who has crucified the flesh, who has put the old man to death, is, is that he is... Uh, more aware of than other men and women of the rebelliousness and the, the, the danger of the pride of his flesh. He knows he's a sloth. He knows he's self-indulgent. You know, he knows he's arrogant. He knows that those things must be eradicated from his life. That the flesh has to be put in its place. And fasting is that practice where we demonstrate and we communicate that to our flesh. And when we turn it into a public thing, where we demonstrate we're so holy because we're fasting, we get the publicity we desire and the reward we're seeking, which is the praise of men. And so, you know, as I think of this text and these teachings of Jesus about righteousness, I think uh, there's just some real clear, specific applications as you think of this text. Uh, the first one is this, is that God is our rewarder. That God will reward us in the place of secret service. And that you, you should allow that to be a motivator in your life. He, he calls us to shine our lights and he rewards that which is done in secret before him. The second thing I think is this, is that the attitude of the heart, the motivation of our lives in regards to matters of the kingdom of God, uh, sorry, the motivation of, of our heart and of our lives, 
matters in the kingdom of God. It matters. And so I just want to give you this today. Welcome to the secret service. You're in, man. You're in. And uh, today we are not going to practice feasting. Or fasting. We're going to feast. We're going to have lunch together. And so uh, what a great text. As Jesus warns us, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I don't know about you, but uh, the praise of man is so fickle and short-lived, isn't it? We want to live for the glory of God, for the reward that will be ours when we get to heaven. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come.